we reached out to the manufacturer like, look, this, this wasn't done right. You obviously didn't do it right. And they, they gave us a lot of pushback. And so we turned around and we said, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but we said, look, all we're asking for you is to start over. This isn't a money thing. It's a doing it properly thing. And once they understood that we weren't asking for more money, that we weren't asking them to credit just for the job to be done right, it changed the entire way the conversation was handled. Hello and welcome to Supply Chain Stories. I'm your host, Nathan Cunningham. This episode is brought to you by Lutello. If you're frustrated with your suppliers, visit www.lutello.com to get a free procurement consultation. Our guest on this episode is Tiafin Magri. He is the co-founder of the company Product. They source and qualify hundreds of suppliers for thousands of products. Tiafin has recently embarked on a new venture called Tiny and Proud. He's working to bring to market in the U.S. and internationally tiny homes at a scale that's never been seen before. Let's dig in. To get us going, tell us a little bit about what tiny homes is, are. Tell us a little bit about the product itself and then your specific role in developing this product in regards to the supply chain. So let's, so let's, let's start there and, and, and see where it takes us. Sure thing. Um, so as far as tiny houses go, generally speaking, there, there's not a single definition for a tiny house, micro home, et cetera. But the generally accepted definition is a home that is under 400 square feet. And they come in different styles and builds and constructions, just like a regular home. But they're generally split up into a couple of different categories, including tiny houses on wheels, affixed tiny homes, which means they're just a normal structure that was built. And then um, there's other build types like container homes, light aluminum framed homes, etc. With um, Tiny and Proud, we've had the opportunity to already make container homes and deliver those. And we're in the process of building out the supply chain for the other types of builds. Um, traditionally speaking, if we take a macro look at the economy uh, or surrounding tiny homes, it's very fragmented, meaning there's a network where people know and speak to each other, but there's no single way of doing things. There's no one-stop shop. And all of the builders are, are private. They, they usually work in their small economy or region. And rarely do you have a company that has multiple locations. It's extremely uncommon. So we were brought in to to the tiny home business uh, with products background of manufacturing because what's happening is there's extremely high demand, there's low supply, but the demand is capped or throttled by the inaccessibility of um, financing. There's very few loans available to people that want to live or purchase a tiny home. So we started to take our experience with manufacturing of consumer goods 
and take that to the manufactured home business and say, okay, instead of saying, how do I make one home every three to six months? How do we make 200 homes in that same period of time or less? And that's been a very, very exciting thing to, to work on with a lot of challenges and loopholes along the way, um, especially since the regulations surrounding them and the compliance that we need to have to make sure that we are built to code that's very loose in the tiny home industry. Um, making sure that we comply to the code that is existent has been probably the most difficult portion of it. That's, uh, that's awesome. So if I understand you correctly, Tiny and Proud has manufactured a container home and you are working to get that to a volume of 200 every three to six months. Um, but you're also looking at fixed or permanent tiny homes, right? Not container homes, but those that are actually like stuck in the ground. That's um, right. That's uh, right. And we're also working on tiny houses on wheels, which is treated a lot like an RV. So it, when you, for those that are into the manufacturing space, the people that make one style of home aren't the same. And, and different parts come from different places. But we've had to go and procure and source subcomponents that comply with US laws. For example, electrical, plumbing, appliances that are 110, not 220. Seeing as we're building the, the supply chain overseas, getting the 110 is, is more difficult than you might anticipate. And so it's not as simple as saying we found one manufacturer. We've had to build a catalog of, I want to say close to 150 suppliers for different goods, as well as assembly plants and production plants for the actual homes. And we're constantly bringing new ones online. What we're, what we're really trying to do that makes it especially complex is very few people are going to need 200 of the same home. Uh, it's never going to happen, right? Everything is going to be custom or semi-custom and either one at a time or on a smaller production run. So we've had to build our supply chain in a way that allows us to effectively and co or cost effectively and quickly be able to make one home that's custom to the one consumer or be able to modify that one plan 25 different times and make it in the same amount of time that we'd make a single home. Okay. So, so walk me through what you've done to uh, categorize those suppliers, like what product categories you're looking for. Um, and then what you've done to actually qualify them and figure out if they're good or not. So we categorize them by need within the home. That, that seemed to be the most logical and most simple. So we took a home and we said, what's our bill of materials? And we, we just clearly listed that bill of materials out of everything we could potentially need. Then we said, okay, anything that's generic, for example, electrical wire, right? We'll put generic electrical wire. It's the same in every home. There's no differences. We just need to make sure we have the two or three different types of wire we need accessible, right? Same thing with plumbing and hoses and pipes. All those things that you know are constant and will be used throughout the home or in one part of the, of the bill of materials. Then we broke it out and said, okay, things that are going to go in the kitchen, in the bathroom, in the bedroom, and in the common spaces. 
We have to remember tiny houses are very small where the container homes, for example, are 320 square feet. So once we did that, we went through and we said, what do we have to comply with for U.S. law? So when we look at the electrical, for example, we knew that we needed to have UL certified electrical, that it needed to come from facilities that could produce that, that had valid certificates, and that were hopefully currently distributing in the U.S. So we could pull those records and uh, those certificates. And once we had those, you know, three or four suppliers that met that criteria that were able to do that, then it was about finding the suppliers. And this is less about cost because cost is last in this scenario. And once we had those that met the criteria that could sell to us, who would sell to us in the volumes we needed to start. And just because they're able to sell a low amount, can they also sell a high amount if we need to ramp up quickly? And so we did this for a year and a half, worked on finding suppliers in different categories, making sure that Again, they could legally supply us. They had the capability of selling in low and high volume and then building a relationship with them that they eventually sold to us. And that's what we've done. Um, one of the interesting things that we found in that process is those, because we're an international business and people are contacting us from Australia, France, French Polynesia, South America, et cetera we found that the suppliers that have taken the time to be certified for a U.S. marketplace also took the time to be certified for the European marketplace with CE. And so it allows us to quickly turn around using the same vendors, you know, probably about 99% of the time, using the same vendors to make the same home certified for the U.S. or certified for Europe, just by simply ordering the materials that we need for that market. Walk me through a little bit of your supplier decision criteria. You ended up with 150. Um, how many did you quote with or how many did you do RFIs with or RFQs with? Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that I have that exact metric. Sure. Um, it's hundreds. The answer is hundreds. I, I just I don't know the exact number. From that 150... In order to simplify the purchasing process and really pull the efficiency lever, what we did was once we narrowed it down to, let's say, for light fixtures, we had it down to two or three vendors. We then passed it on to the assembly facility for their local buying team for them to handle those negotiations and select the product that was best. So for us, that allowed us to really focus on making sure we had the right materials and then having the crew that was going to do the quality control, the installation, having them on site have control over what they were buying and making sure they were getting at the price point they needed to. So, so this kind of final assembly factory um, that, you, that you contracted with, um, you kind of gave them, hey, here's the list of vendors and part numbers that uh, we're okay with you buying from. First of all, is that correct? And then second, uh, how much leeway do you give on that? So yes, that's correct. The reason it's important is we knew that we could find the materials we needed. That wasn't a concern. The concern was more, can we find an electrician in China that can make stuff to U.S. standards correctly, consistently, time and time again? So 
we found the materials we needed and then we put a lot of our time and effort in making sure that the actual manufacturing and production of the of the finished product was to spec and and that's a lot of trust you're giving someone right and it's more than just making a sweatshirt or a pillow this is someone's home right or an investment property that they're going to airbnb or whatever and so making sure that you have the right electrical wire is good but if the wire is not put in properly in the first place it doesn't really matter the quality of the wire it's going to catch on fire it's a problem so finding and building that relationship of trust is important and that's one of the reasons we wanted to give them autonomy of saying look you can choose from this whomever you like to work with whoever's best for you as the factory that's actually going to receive inspect and pay you do that and i think it's it goes a long way into building a relationship with the vendor and it empowers them to not only do a good job but to be fully accountable for the the choice in materials and the job they've done it's interesting so because you're ultimately buying one home from one vendor uh, you're giving them a lot of leeway because they're ultimately responsible and accountable. And that's exactly right. And the, the difference here is we're not telling them, go find whatever light you can find. We're saying whether you prefer to work with Amy, Jim, or Paul, it doesn't matter to us. They're all approved and they know what we want. But if you prefer Paul over Amy, we're not going to tell you work with Amy because you don't like her. And I'm using made up names, of course, but, but the idea is whomever they enjoy working with, whoever they think is simpler, closer to them logistically has the same style management or culture or whatever it may be. If that's the person they want to work with, if they give them better terms, that's what we want them to do. We want to keep it so everyone's happy. And I know that seems silly and dumb, but a happy manufacturer will do a lot more for you than, a, than one that's begrudgingly doing the work. So yes, we gave them a lot of leeway, but I think it's normal. It's, it's empowerment. It's allowing them to do the job the way they want to do it using your guidelines and criterias to do so. It's really interesting. That's uh, that's super cool. Um, so all of the guests that we've had on, on this podcast so far have talked about trust. And it's kind of an interesting theme. Can you tell me a little bit about maybe a particular situation that either you lost trust entirely or you gained trust almost instantly? Um, and then maybe both, maybe if you have two, two, two situations. So we were a few months into production. And I say months because we're including the engineering, design, planning, things like that. We were uh, sometime into production and uh, we found out that if we didn't use the right size aluminum studs and we've used foam insulation in it, it would actually fill the aluminum studs and they would expand. And the problem that happens when you do that is you put the shiplap on, but it's not all straight because the studs have expanded differently based on the thickness of the foam that was inside. You know, things we didn't know that would happen, right? Totally happened. And um, we reached out to the manufacturer like, look, this, this wasn't done right. You obviously didn't do it right. And they, they gave us a lot of pushback 
And so we turned around and we said, look, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny story, but we said, look, all we're asking for you is to start over. This isn't a money thing. It's a doing it properly thing. And once they understood that we weren't asking for more money, that we weren't asking them to credit just for the job to be done right, it changed the entire way the conversation was handled. They were going off the assumption that we were saying, you messed up, you have to pay us all this cash, when really, or you have to pay for it to be replaced, when really all we were saying is, hey, we hit something no one had foreseen, no one knew would happen, it's okay, this is our first run at it, let's fix it and get it right, and we're going to pay for it because that's normal, you did the job we asked you to do, but you also didn't know and it ended up not being what we wanted, so you need to fix it. And by having that conversation and by really allowing them, by, by us taking responsibility and asking them to help us fix it, I think they understood that we were partners, that we're not just waiting to point the finger at them and say, you messed up, you are bad, horrible manufacturer, but rather, friend, I need you to correct this so we can get it right. Let me know whatever you need and we're there for you. And, and building those relationships and working through problems like that as they, as they come up has gone a long way. I'll give you another example. Since that time, they realized after final inspection that somehow, and we're not quite sure what happened, that almost every piece of glass on the windows had small scratches. And we don't know if it's during painting, if something got it. We, we just don't know what happened, but they had scratches. And without telling us, they covered the cost of replacing every glass in every window in the home. There's, I think, 13 windows in the house or 16 windows. That's a steep cost. It's not a cheap thing to do. And, but they did that without telling us because they said they knew it was the right thing. And they felt like they were probably accountable for that because the home was in their care. So th those relationships in Chinese, they call it guanxi are built on trust, they're built on mutual interest, and nourishing them or nurturing them is the most important thing you can do as a, as a purchasing agent. Just in general, you know, have you gotten more out of the relationship? Have you, have you gotten more value than, the, than what the cash was of that first incident? 100%. So in, in the model home, the cost of doing it wrong is much greater than doing it right in every single situation, right? It's like you can't make your sample bad, bad choice, right? Your sample has to be perfect any way you cut it. But um, the cost of fixing that, I want to say, was probably comparable to changing all the glass. It was probably similar in actual dollars spent. But... For us, that didn't matter. We, we just needed to do it right. And we knew that even though they had done the work incorrectly, it wasn't, that, that's not even the right word because they, they had done the, word, the work correctly, but the results weren't what we wanted. It's probably the best way to say it. And so we felt it was normal that we would pay to fix it. And, and later on, when there were scratches on the windows, same thing. They felt like it was normal for them to do that. I know, and I'm confident that had we nickel and dimed them throughout the entire process, they wouldn't have taken the time to fix those windows.
And I'll tell you what, fixing those windows in the USA would have probably been 10 times the price of fixing them in China, 10 times. So we're extremely thankful that they took the time to do that. And in the future, for the, for the homes being made now and the homes being made in the future, I think we've built a, a healthy, or we've started to build a healthy relationship by which we understand that when we do a design flaw or when we don't choose the right materials or don't give the right guidelines, that's our problem. And they also understand that, you know, we're looking at everything and that we will inspect and we will hold them accountable when they are at fault. But when they are not, we're not going to point fingers. That's not how results, that's how you get the results you want, not by blaming others. That's, uh, that's really cool. Any situations where at, at the end you were like, wow, I do not trust you and we're done doing business with you or anything along those lines? A hundred percent. When you're looking for manufacturers, you walk into some of those factories and you're like, uh, no, thank you. Not a chance in, not a chance in this lifetime. We visit, so we started, we have a contract, I should say with the largest container manufacturer in the world by far 70% of the containers flow out of their facilities and we work with them to make these container homes as soon as that contract was signed i i don't know how all of these factories started reaching out to us from around china uh, literally dozens of them started reaching out to us i don't know how they know that we made an agreement it's fascinating but they reached out to us and we, we received some pricing that was pretty spectacular. And we said, wow, we, we, should, we really need to go check this out. And as usual, it's usually too good to be true. No surprise there. But we were really surprised by when you get into a welding shop where someone's making a manufacturer and people are in flip-flops cutting metal. It just doesn't make sense. Like we can never work with someone like that, right? Um, people don't have face masks. They don't have shields over their faces as they're welding, they're cutting metal without gloves, and just t-shirt, shorts, and flip-flops. Again, just all sorts of things. And then we would get in there and we'd look at the final assembly and we literally, they were, had them with outlets that had nine wires coming out of one outlet. No one knows why. And so we just look at this, we're like, look, you're not manufactured in a clean and safe way. Your electrical is clearly messed up. No one knows why this is the way it is. And there's just no trust there. You're, you're trying to sell us on the project, on the process, and you're saying, you know, no problem, it's easy, we'll fix it. When it, you haven't done anything to prove to us that you can do that. And so, you know, that we just walk away. They're one of the hundreds that just never made the cut to the 150. Could never make it. I feel like the vendors that we were able to get down to, that we, we have an agreement with, I feel like. Um, there's no one in that group that I, I don't trust. However, um, things can change, right? And that's why you take the time to find multiple suppliers for everything. In regards to your growth aspirations, um, you know, you talked about going from one home every three to six months to trying to do 200. What percentage of the products that you have can 
um, can go through one vendor, right? How many of your vendors have capacity for that high volume? And which ones are you going to have to split into two, three, four different suppliers and, uh, and maybe where you haven't solved for the volume yet that you need? So the container homes, we can ramp up as quickly or as slowly as we want. So we can do zero homes in 2020, or we can do 200 a day on an eight week delay. It is, we can do that, no problem. I don't know who's going to need 200 identical container homes, but if they did, we could do it, right? (laughs) There are some other, so it's interesting about the containers is they're made indoors, but they can be finished outdoors, right? So you're not really restricted by space. Things that are made on a trailer, like the RV style, tiny houses on wheels, you have to make them indoors start to finish. Uh, Once the trailer rolls into the factory, they have to be covered because the roof is the last thing to be finished on the home, right? And so those ones, we do have some limitations on production capacity. However, we have three potential vendors we can use and we're in the process of finding a fourth. That one's also interesting because making custom trailers in China that has different um, standards for vehicles on the road is also a loophole we've had to take quite a bit of time to jump through. We had some people reach out to us and say, oh, I can buy something like this on Alibaba for thirty-five dollars or $42,000. And we say, yeah, but you'll never be able to get a VIN number. You'll never be able to move it, drive it. It has to come off a semi and get rolled onto your property and that's it. Nothing else you can do because it doesn't mean the it doesn't meet the standards on the road. So we're we're in the process of putting on another factory for that that will allow us to expand uh, production. Most of those facilities can do about five units a month. So production capacity on those is much more limited, but we also think demand is slightly smaller, if that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Uh, what has been the biggest challenge, the biggest supply chain challenge in um, setting up a, a container home? Uh, definitely the logistics. I, I think that, that was a short answer. I'll give you more. I'll give you some more sure. information there. When, for us, because of our background with product, finding qualified vendors is rather easy. It's what we do all day long for various businesses, right? And that was really our value add to, um, to Tiny and Proud, right? We had the manufacturing and, and the sourcing. The, the difficult part is, and, and you can, oh, let me step back here, and you can control your vendors. You can choose who you want to work with, assuming there's multiple choices, right? When you get to logistics, you're, you're at the mercy of the freight lines. They either will take your container or they will not. And if they will, at what price and on what boat and in what timeline and things like that. And we had four freight lines deny us. We had one port deny us completely. We had one freight line that accepted us. Then they said to cover the container. So we had to ship it back to the factory and cover it, send it back to the port. Then another port denied us saying, no, we won't take it. These are ports, meaning within cities in China. It would be like saying, Oakland denied us, so we shipped it to Seattle. Then Seattle said, yes, cover it, so we had to send it back to Oakland. 
have it covered, send it back to Seattle. Then Seattle said no again because it was covered. So, so we had to play that game. And then ultimately we found someone that was willing to take it on their boat, but we had to ship it again to a, a third city in China that agreed to take it. But the boat was literally the slowest boat I've ever had come out of Asia. I think it took like 29 days on the water to the West Coast. It was a nonstop ship. N- never had anything that slow in my career. But it, look, it was what it was. What, what are we going to do? At a point in time, we are at the mercy of the freight line. And so was it challenging? It was difficult. I think it was more frustrating. We didn't understand why this is an ISO certified container. There's nothing wrong. Everything is covered. It's capped. It's clean. You know, here are our certificates. We, we paid the money to have them say it's good to go. And yet they still said no, because they didn't want to accept the liability for it. And so I, I, anyone that wants to say, I can do this in China, I say, good luck, you know, be ready to go into it full time and, and figuring it out and sourcing out all the components. And once you have that figured out, finding someone that can actually make it the way you need to be done, we're in the process of preparing master electricians to send there to train, by the way, uh, more people. But, you know, I say good luck to that. But then finding a carrier that will actually do it and handle it well and safe. And if you're in the manufacturing or logistics space, you know that a container, there's many hands in the pot when it comes to moving it around. You have the agent that sets up the pickup in China that moves it to the port. Then the port handles it. Then the freight line. Then the local port at delivery then the rail yard and you know, all these hands. And we, we were really afraid that it was going to arrive damaged or that all the windows would be blown in and all those things. That, that was probably the most challenging, frustrating and, and worrisome portion of the entire project. Is there anything, anything that you'd want to touch on um, bef- before we wrap this up? Well, I'll tell you this about manufacturing a tiny home. It's been a ton of fun because I'm a, I'm a supply chain geek, right? So I like the challenge of finding the manufacturers and qualifying them and running into problems as we're manufacturing. But it's been really stressful for those looking in, right? And, and we've had a, a lot of hate because we're making it overseas. But I can tell you what, we met with people from the governor's office in the state of Utah and they get a report on building capacity and production schedules and things like that from the builders. And the builders in the state of Utah cannot keep up with the need. They, they can't do it. And there's a similar problem in, in many of the states throughout the U.S. And so they're considering options for tiny houses. They're looking into it as a viable solution where we manufacture these homes and bring them in as starter homes for people. And it's a super exciting business and we've really enjoyed it. So if it's something that anyone's interested in selling or bringing to their community or they, they're in the city council, love to tell them more about it and how they're being made overseas because uh, we had the city council members from the, the city of Lehigh at our open house. And they were saying, you know, this, in the inside of the home, they said, it's nicer than my house. We're like, well, yeah, it's, it's nice. It's really, really well made. It's just happens to be small. <laughs>